welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm super excited to have uh, Dr. Jose Santos on this morning from the University of Florida. So uh, Dr. Santos is a professor in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Florida, where he conducts research and extension in dairy cattle nutrition and reproduction. He earned his uh, DVM from Sao Paulo State University in Brazil in 1992, completed a master's and PhD degrees in 95 and 97 at the University of Arizona, and a clinical residency in dairy production medicine in 2000 in the School of Vet Medicine at uh, UC Davis. Before joining the University of Florida, Jose spent eight years as a faculty member in the Department of Population Health and Reproduction in the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of California, Davis. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Santos, and how are things in Florida this morning? Uh, Good morning, uh, Keith. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, Today is a beautiful spring day in Florida. So we have sunshine, no rain. Oh, that's good to... Good to hear. I know we had an opportunity, uh, I think you worked with uh, one of my colleagues, Chelsea, to set up a tour of the uh, the campus there in uh, Gainesville, I think in 2020. And uh, you've definitely got a really nice university there with a really, really good research farm and a good team. So it was, uh, it was a pleasure to be down there. I know we didn't get to meet you at the time. I think you were away, uh, but we were with uh, Dr. Uh, I think Antonio. He, he kind of took the lead and toured us around, so it was really good. So I guess the the biggest thing this morning that I kind of want to talk about is calcium strategies in dry cows. And I know you've done a lot of research, been cited quite a few times, and and um, it's just uh, it's something that we it's always an issue. I think anytime you use the word transition on a dairy farm, there's always trouble that follows. Uh, so I guess trying to help producers facilitate the best uh, transition for these cows to get into the milking line is kind of our goal. Um, and I know you focus a lot on DCAD, so I think that's kind of where we'll go from today. But uh, can you maybe explain some of the, your recent stuff and and what you're doing with DCAD right now, and then uh, we'll go from there? Yeah. So, uh, in fact, uh, the transition period is when most problems usually take place in a typical farm. Yeah. So we tend to focus a lot on what happens to the cow in the weeks preceding calving and in the first few weeks after calving because to a large extent that dictates the success of the cow in the subsequent lactation. So one of the problems that many cows uh, face is a drop in blood calcium with the onset of lactation. So concentrations of calcium in blood are usually very tightly regulated in every mammal, including dairy cattle. And minor changes, either a, an increase or a decrease, can be life-threatening. So it doesn't take a lot of change in blood concentration of calcium to uh, uh, create problems for the cow. So uh, the key uh, aspect here is to formulate diets that first don't predispose cows to hypocalcemia because hypocalcemia is the so-called uh, gateway disease. He opens the doors for uh, many other problems. Cows that typically have low blood calcium uh, that typically persists for more than one day after calving, they tend to have increased risk of uterine disease, displaced double maize, and so on and so forth. 
So one of the goals of transition cow management, in particular diet formulation, is to reduce the risk of hypocalcemia by taking things out of the diet that can predispose cows to develop that and then add things to the diet that counteracts uh, uh, the uh, 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 factors that increase the risk of hypocalcemia in cows. So balancing diets for minerals, uh, what we call uh, manipulating the dietary cation and ion difference or DCAD is one of the strategies that is well established to prevent uh, uh, or reduce the risk of hypocalcemia postpartum. Uh, primarily uh, milk fever, the clinical disease, but also the subclinical state, which is that borderline low blood calcium that you may not necessarily see the clinical symptoms, but that tends to increase the risk of other disease. So uh, there are several strategies. The one that we know better, that we've studied more, that there are more data in the literature is uh, manipulation of DCAD, but that's not the only one. Yeah, and can you maybe explain like the calculation that you do on DCAD, like what and maybe some of the physiological things that are happening in the cow that uh, that makes DCAD so effective? Yeah, it's actually a quite interesting story. This was serendipity because people fed uh, in Scandinavia diets uh, to improve fiber digestion. So a typical strategy to improve fiber digestion in the past was to add alkali or acids to low quality silages or straw to increase digestion of the fibrous fraction. So uh, what the uh, 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 investigators in this case did, they treated silage with acid and then uh, the target animals they fed were dry cows. So, and, and this silage contained a, a, a high content of chloride and uh, uh, sulfate. And those two uh, uh, minerals, chlor chlorine and sulfur, uh, they, when absorbed, they tend to induce a state of metabolic acidosis. Okay, so the blood pH drops uh, slightly. Okay, and they found out that those cows that were fed this acid-treated silage, they didn't develop milk fever. And this opened the door, this was in the 50s, and this opened the door to extensive research that took place really uh, after the mid-80s here in the United States and in North America. It wasn't until uh, a scientist from Canada, an American scientist from Canada, actually uh, put together the concept uh, uh, of uh, dietary cation and ion difference as a preventative method for milk fever. Uh, so the, the idea is to feed more units of strong anions than strong cations. Anions are those uh, minerals that have an, a negative charge. So examples would be uh, uh, chlorine, you know, chloride or sulfur, sulfate. Uh, the examples of strong cations uh, would be potassium and uh, sodium. And uh, the reason why they uh, are called strong anions and strong cations, because we feed them in large quantities. We feed them in grams and they are highly uh, absorbable, particularly chloride, sodium, and potassium. So when they get into the bloodstream of the animal, they change the ionic equilibrium of the solution. So imagine that I eat salt, for example, there is sodium and there is chloride. A salt is a neutral compound, 
But when absorbed, if both are absorbed at the same rate, then it tends to not alter the acid-base balance of the animal because the same uh, uh, amount of uh, what we call equivalence of a positively charged ion, in this case, sodium, enters the bloodstream in uh, the same number of equivalents of a negatively charged ion, in this case, chloride. But let's use the example for, uh, of uh, ammonium chloride, for example, okay? So ammonium chloride is NH4Cl. So it has an ammonium ion, which is the positively charged ion, and it has a negative ion uh, uh, or an anion, which is the chloride. When the cow eats that, the ammonium ion uh, and the chloride, chloride dissociate in the rumen. They separate. They become two uh, ions, free ions in the rumen. And the bugs in the rumen use that ammonium as a nitrogen source for growth. They use the nitrogen to synthesize amino acids. Another bacteria gets synthesized. So now you have a free chlorine or a free chloride in the rumen fluid. And eventually that gets absorbed in the gastrointestinal tract and it brings a negatively charged ion into the bloodstream. And that alters uh, uh, the electric charge of the cell. And what the cell does, it pumps out a negatively charged ion into the lumen of the gastrointestinal tract. There is an exchange in, during the absorption process. And what the cell pumps out is bicarbonate, you know, the so-called HCO3, and that is a buffer. So then the animal loses buffer and the blood pH goes down. So that causes a slight metabolic acidosis. The, the pH of blood drops slightly and it activates a series of mechanisms, uh, one of which is an increase in absorption of calcium in the gastrointestinal tract. And another one is an increase in mobilization of calcium from uh, bone, from storage sites in the skeleton. So. So those two mechanisms associated with the change in blood pH makes the blood to contain more of what we call ionized calcium, which is the fraction of calcium that is available to the cell. So to make this long, complicated story short, when we feed these diets that uh, they are mistakenly called uh, anionic diets, uh, the diets are not anion, they are acidogenic. They have the ability to cause acidosis. Uh, when we feed that, we lower the blood pH and that activates mechanisms that increases the flux of calcium in the body of the cow. And that tends to reduce the risk of hypocalcemia when the cow is challenged. And the biggest challenge for hypocalcemia in the cow is when she secretes colostrum. It's that first 12 to 36 hours after calving that she's coming from a period of uh, uh, somewhat small calcium needs. And then all of a sudden, within 12, 24 hours, she has this uh, uh, marked increase in calcium demands, increases, you know, almost three times the needs for calcium. And some cows just cannot cope with that. Those are the ones that eventually go down and we see the clinical sign. The issue is that's a small fraction of the problem. The Perhaps the biggest problem that many times we don't see are those that don't show the obvious clinical signs, but they have borderline low calcium that triggers uh, the increased risk of other disease. 
So when we feed these uh, uh, diets and induce this light state of metabolic acidosis, the cow is just more capable of handling that challenge once lactation starts. Uh, the compact, comp the, the, the uh, mechanisms are not that simple. It's hard sometimes to explain because it involves uh, acid-based chemistry of the blood. But if uh, uh, a producer thinks like this, I'm feeding something that acts as uh, an antidote. So in general, if we think about milk fever, the poison is high potassium, high sodium in the diet, things that make the blood more alkaline. In general, that would be to make an analogy, a simple analogy. Yeah? And the antidote are things that actually reduce blood pH. And this would be the uh, 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 strong anion, salts that contain strong anions, such as chloride in particular, but also to some extent sulfur. So things that are high in chloride or products that are high in chloride tend to counteract this. So then the, the goal here is really to remove the poison from the diet, the quote-unquote poison that uh, uh, increases the risk of hypocalcemia, uh, which is not always simple. Uh, so basically feed diets that are very low in potassium and sodium, and then add a little bit of the antidote to complement the diet so we have the proper decad that tends to minimize uh, the risk of that particular metabolic state and disease. Yeah, because the like the actual decad calculation is is just your sodium and potassium. You add those together minus your chloride and sulfur and gives you your your, your value. Charge, that is correct. correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so we so. typically we look like say you send samples to a lab. Let's say you send a, a forage sample. Let's use this mm -hmm. example, corn silage, and the lab will tell you what is the concentration of sodium, potassium. Uh, chlorine, sulfur, in, a, in addition to other minerals and other organic compounds. Yeah, so then yeah. for each kilogram of that uh, corn silage dry matter, you have so many grams of each of those elements. And each of those elements has what we call a, a, a atomic weight or a molecular weight. And then uh, that molecular weight, depending upon the number of uh, charges, uh, will give you what we call an equivalent weight. So, for mm -hmm. instance, in the case of uh, sodium chloride, if we think of salt, uh, a mole of salt is, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, 35, 35 and a half plus uh, 23, yeah, 23 plus 35, 58, 59 grams or something like that. So a fraction of that mole is sodium, a fraction is chloride. But because they are in a salt form, they are a neutral compound. So when they combine, they are neutral. But when they dissociate, they if you put salt in water, okay, some of the sodium will be free, some of the chlorine will be free. Okay. So now imagine the gastrointestinal tract of the cow. If both of them are absorbed equally, once they get back into the blood, they bring the same number of positive charges as negative charges. But if uh, one of them is absorbed at a greater extent than the other, then the charges are not in equilibrium anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you get more positive charges, blood pH goes up. If you get more negative charges, blood pH goes down. In the case of DCAD, when we calculate, and eventually you may get a negative value, let's say a minus 100 milliequivalents per kilo, let's say for a TMR, a diet that we might feed, 
all that's telling you is that we get more negative charged ions expected to be absorbed than positively charged ions. On the other hand, if the decad is positive, all that's telling you is that we expect more positively charged ions to be absorbed in the gastrointestinal tract of the cow than negatively charged ions. So a typical lactating cow diet will have a, a large value for decad, will be plus 300, plus 400. So the goal then is to cause, uh, to maintain a state of slight metabolic alkalosis because that's good for milk yield. But the goal of a prepartum diet, if you are utilizing manipulations of the decad to prevent hypocalcemia is to have a negative value because that uh, causes a slight state of metabolic acidosis that triggers all the mechanisms of uh, calcium absorption, mobilization, and the whole uh, uh, calcium flux in the body increases and that minimizes the risk of milk fever. There's so much science, like I know I've been playing around with it uh, decad for a few years now and uh to get that to get that balance is very to where the cows are 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 kind of working at their peak is is it's very different it's very difficult because like you can look at it at paper but then if you get a dry matter change or something on farm with a with corn silage or something like it just that throws that number out the window so i know uh testing your mph is pretty pretty important Actually, you touch on a very important point. Now, oftentimes we focus so much on a value from a calculated value, yeah? but that, that value is not constant. It changes because composition of forage and particularly forages and byproducts can vary. So think of your farm that you're going through a pile of silage or haylage, let's say barley silage and corn silage in, in Canada, for instance, yeah? Yep. Or in the U.S., it might be uh, corn silage straw and alfalfa haylage or something like that. So you're getting different loads if it is uh, purchase feed, or even if you're getting uh, uh, using corn silage in a pile. You know, you have piles that uh, you know silage that came from different fields that the application of manure was quite different. The plant is not the same plant throughout the field, so the concentration of minerals will change. This is why it's quite important to monitor the program. In general, people who are successful uh, using balance, balancing for DCAD and they don't have this disasters, oh, oh, now all of a sudden I have a spike in milk fever, or now all of a sudden I have too many cows that are not eating very well, because it can go both directions. If you yep. make a mistake one way or the other, uh, overfeeding or underfeeding those salts, uh, the people who do really well is that the first thing they do is they avoid feeds that predispose cows to hypocalcemia. So they select feeds that are uh, very low in potassium in particular. That's the first thing. And then they add the salts or the minerals to balance the diet, but they monitor. They monitor urine pH twice a week to gauge and make minor changes uh, as they see needed. And they have constant feed analysis, yeah? So they always analyze yeah. feed. Well, I, I, and I even think just the most important thing, like like if we're going to test urine like once to twice a week, like you should probably be doing dry matters at the same time. Like oh, especially, yeah. And I know like we're feeding like, like in Ontario, tip, our typical dry cow diets are, you know, four to four and a half kilos of dry matter of corn silage, uh, you know, anywhere from five to seven kilos of dry matter straw and maybe a little bit of haylage and then some protein and some minerals. 
And like, I think the goal and what I've kind of focused on is try to limit as much potassium as you can before you even start adding the decad, because I think it's like, from what I've learned from it, it, it's the, it's the biggest wild card and it can affect it more. So if you're having higher P it's just throwing off your, your decad number, you just got to put more of the, whatever product you might be using into the diet to get the, to get the, the number on paper that you're looking for. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, the DCAD has this challenge, like particularly when you're monitoring urine pH is that you're working uh, in a, uh, a phase or in a, in a, 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 a value of urine pH that's quite dynamic. So probably, hopefully some of your uh, uh, listeners will remember their chemistry class where they did titration you keep adding uh, a, a base or acid to a solution and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden you had one more drop and the color changes. Yeah. So that's DCAD. That's like the urine pH. You're working in that zone in which a little bit more potassium, just a tiny bit, or a little bit more chloride can take things in very opposite directions. And uh, unfortunately, the ideal place to be is this uncomfortable zone in which the urine pH is quite dynamic. You don't want to have alkaline urine, you know, uh, 8.0 or 7.5. Neither you want to have acidic urine, 5.5, because in both uh, uh, directions, one, you have greater risk of milk fever. The other one, you affect the cow's metabolism to the point that you may predispose her to other problems. So you are in that range of urine pH of 6, 6.2, 6.5, that is quite dynamic. And that's what's difficult for many people to manage if they don't pay attention because you can go quite easily to a very alkaline or, a, 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 you know, quote-unquote alkaline and quote-unquote acidic urine quite quite fast with minor changes in the diet. You're, you're completely right. Yeah, I know. And... I have to thank some of my producers who helped me with this because a lot of times I'll just get a, a text of a picture of the cows they did that week and they'll say, oh, it looks pretty good or what do you think about this? And and we look at it and you say, yeah, that's good or that's bad. And I just like, what would the, like from a nutrition side or a nutritionist side of things, like what would you feel comfortable with um, of having uh, failures with the DCAD? Like, cause it, it seems like there's always a few that, you know, you get a whole bunch of cows that are in that 5.8 to 6.2 range. And then you get a couple outliers at eight or eight and a half. Like what's the, I guess what's acceptable yeah. when we're looking at that. So, so usually if a cow eats the diet and the diet is uh, properly mixed, cows uh, respond uh, uh, very well to DCAD. You know, the cow won't lie. Her urine pH will really reflect the aspate status of the animal. So that's something that we can rely very heavily on. Uh, but you're right, uh, there will be animals that don't follow the protocol and that is perfectly acceptable. So if you ask me, what should the urine pH be? Uh, if you sample 10 cows every time, you expect that uh, most, if not all of them will be between five, eight and seven. Ideally, that would be the case, okay? So you are gonna get an average of six, two, six, three, six, one but you want your cows to be between 5.8 to 7. So are, are there going to be cows below 5.8? Yes. In what cases? Cows that eat more dry matter. As soon as they eat a little more, they get more of that negative decad diet that causes acidosis and that will uh, further decrease 
blood and urine pH. Who are the cows that are gonna be in the high range of that 5A to 7? Are the cows that don't eat very well? So you get a heifer that's eating only eight kilograms of dry matter versus yeah. a cow that's eating 14 kilograms of dry matter. Okay, although it's exactly the same diet, let's say your diet's mixed perfectly, just this six kilograms difference in intake can bring the decad to one of the extremes. On top of that, you have diets that are not perfectly mixed. Yeah, so let's say if a producer adds each ingredient separately and he relies on that mixing of the mixing web, they don't have pre-batches, yeah? Mm -hmm. Then the probability of having things that are more concentrated in one portion of the diet versus another, uh, yeah, that can be a, a, a problem. And lastly, you know, cows eat uh, as a cycle throughout the day. Imagine that you have a cow that is less dominant. She is the last one to go to the bunk, yeah? And let's say that you create some competition in the feed bunk because you have a little bit of overcrowding. You are in that time of the year that you have more calvins, more dry cows than your infrastructure allows you to. Yeah. So now that cow that goes last to the bunk because there is a little bit of overcrowding, she doesn't get exactly the same diet because there is selection throughout the day in the, in the feed bunk. So now whatever is left there, if there is more grain, maybe decad is much smaller than what was actually uh, 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 planned. If there is more forage because the cow selected against forages throughout mm -hmm. the course of the day, then it will be the opposite direction. So yes, you should accept variability. That's part of the biological process. What you don't want is to have cows have urine pHs of seven and a half, eight. Neither you want cows that have urine pHs 5.0 to five and a half. So once you get to those extremes, then it's time for you to review uh, a composition of the forages, mixing quality, delivery, access to feed, you know, typical husbandry management factors that are important regardless of using decad or not how big of an impact is water on their like the decad like can you like if you, you say you get some like i don't know it's like higher sulfur water like is that going to affect your decad numbers as well usually very minor effect is it just because the sulfur is bound to something else or no well you know, like uh, uh, high sulfur water like we have in South Florida, uh, it can be an issue, particularly for absorption of trace elements like selenium, copper. But in the decad calculation, uh, usually the contribution is not large, it's not huge. So you're talking about milligrams per liter, even okay. in a high sulfur content water. And these dry cows, they are drinking, uh, if it is not a hot day, perhaps 25 to 30 liters of water a day. If it is a hot day, she may go up to 60, 70 liters per day of water. So when you do the math, those uh, milligrams become just a few grams that is not a huge component of the total uh, uh, sulfur intake. Now, if you are unlucky and you have water with excess of salt, and by for some reason you have excess of sodium, which is uh, unusual, but I guess it may happen some odd place. Uh, yeah, there is a potential of having some effect on decad uh, when you put it all together, but usually the amounts are small. Okay? So just, uh, just to exemplify, if you think of uh, how much that dry cow eats, let's use an easy example of 12 kilos of dry matter. Uh, mm -hmm. If that diet has 1% uh, 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 potassium, 
she is eating about 120 grams of potassium per day. The water won't supply a lot more than a few grams. So it's a, it, it's a very small component of that. And the okay. same is true for sulfur. Sulfur, she might be eating 30 grams to 40 grams per day. Uh, a heavy sulfur water will add maybe uh, you know a few grams, one gram or less uh, of, of sulfur. It's, it's a small component. I, I don't mean that it should be neglected. You know, high sulfur water has issues, but uh, uh, in general, I don't think it's enough to affect uh, the risk of milk fever. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lot of talk about like partial versus uh, full decad. Can you maybe talk about that? Or, or dispel the myth, one or the other. Yeah, so DCAD has definitely benefits for cows that are going to start their second lactation or greater, at least to what we know today. Okay, cows are going to start their second or greater lactation. Uh, they, uh, uh, when fed acidogenic diets prepartum, they have less disease, they produce more milk. So there's a lot of benefits from that. What we don't know very well is whether there are benefits or not when we feed to nulliparous cows, those are going to start their first lactation. So the literature is not as rich uh, uh, with data for first lactation animals. Okay, And uh, the experiments that we've done and others have done would show that uh, a smaller value of DCAD, or uh, I should say a greater value, and not as negative for the heifer, uh, if there is a benefit, you don't want to be at the same range as the cow. The problem is that most medium-sized farms, small and medium-sized farms, cannot segregate heifers from cows when they go into the prepartum pen. So you, may, you need to make an executive decision. What diet do you feed? Do I target the heifers? Do I target the cows? Most people will target the cows. Now, there is this debate of what if we don't feed a diet that is as acidogenic? Obviously, when you are in a decad that is closer to the neutral, the risk of hypocalcemia increases, okay? So let me give you a simple example. Let's call the, the quote unquote, something that I don't like to use, fully acidified uh, diet, because the diet's not acidified at all. And that's where the mistake is. The people who don't understand aspase balance, they speak a language that doesn't exist in chemistry. But anyways, the diet causes acidosis or not in the cow, but the diet's not acid, okay? So, uh, or alkaline by any means. Uh, in fact, most diets, if you don't add anything, will probably have a low pH because of the silages that are there and the acids that come from the silages that we feed. But anyways, when we feed the diet, uh, it can cause more or less acidosis depending upon the mineral composition of that diet. So let's assume that I'm going to have two examples, a minus 100 mil equivalents per kilo, it's a diet that we would typically recommend for prepartum cows to prevent hypocalcemia, et cetera, or a diet that is zero milliequivalents per kilo, which is an intermediate diet. Okay, a typical lactating cow diet would be plus 200, plus 300, plus 400. Okay, so what are the differences of these two? The zero will give you quite unstable or variable urine pHs. You're going to have cows that are 6.0 and you're going to have cows that are 7.9. So it's going, to, it's going to be very, very variable because now you are in that phase of the uh, titration curve for uh, urine pH that it, the cow can be anywhere. Okay. And okay. you will have a few more cases of milk fever. So you should expect that 
in your older cows, it will not be unusual to have down cows that will require calcium IV or oral calcium. Compared to the minus 100, uh, uh, you're gonna have a very small risk of uh, clinical milk fever. Maybe one out of 100 cows will go down with milk fever. Whereas in the zero, you're probably gonna get two or three cows. There's gonna be an increase there, okay? Now, the proponents of the zero, you know, this not uh, as a cetogenic diet, uh, they are trying to avoid the excess of acidosis causing uh, depression in dry matter intake, or uh, changes in energy metabolism in the cow, which has some merit. Uh, what we don't know is we don't have enough data with uh, zero milli equivalents or this partially acidogenic diets. Okay? What we know is that as the decad decreases, the risk of milk fever uh, also decreases and the production increases. Now, is there a point in which we overfeed these uh, uh, acidogenic salts? And the answer is yes. Once you start getting urine pHs uh, five and a half or less, you cause what's called a state of uh, uncompensated metabolic acidosis. So the cow is less able to regulate acid-base balance. And that affects energy metabolism in the cow, induces more uh, uh, adipose tissue mobilization, it suppresses appetite, and that has consequence to things like uh, fatty liver, displaced abomasum, things like that. So as anything in biology, there is uh, uh, inadequate amounts, optimum and excessive, yeah? So mm -hmm. a good thing can become a bad thing very quickly, and a good thing can be inadequate if you underfeed. So I think the, the body of knowledge today would support uh, a, a diet that maintains a mean urine pH in that uh, low six, okay, uh, six two, six three, in which cows have a range between five eight to seven or five and a half to seven. So if that's what you're doing, I think you're probably in the right track. Once you start having too many cows above seven or too many cows below five eight, you need to probably rethink that. Yeah, and that's. Here, the herd sizes were typically not working with bigger herds, like, and so it's very easy, I think, sometimes to adjust the dosage if you're if you're doing the urine pHs because a lot of times people are just top dressing a product of some some sort and just kind of mixing it in there with a fork or their boot or whatever. And I, I think it's easy to adapt there if they're, like I said earlier, like if they're doing their uh, urine pHs. So, um. Can you feed decad for too long? Like, what's the optimal time frame to feed the? Uh... Yeah, I think the we don't know exactly what is the optimum number of days. Yeah, uh, what we know is you know this uh, bi binomial question: Should we feed just in the close up or during the entire dry period? Mm -hmm. Do I feed from two hundred and thirty days of gestation all the way through calving? or I feed starting at 250, 55 days of gestation. And uh, there are four experiments in the literature that I'm aware of that have addressed that question. And in general, feeding during the entire dry period, uh, it is not as good as feeding just during the last three weeks of gestation. So you get a little bit less milk. You still prevent milk fever. That is not an issue, but the milk response is less. 
So if you ask me uh, what should a producer do, they should still have the far-off diet and the close-up diet and manipulate the decad to cause uh, uh, to feed acidogenic diets just in the close-up pre-parting period. Yeah, and that and cow should be there for three weeks, three to four weeks. Is there like when you're on the the longer decad or even on decad in general? Is there a change in culling practices? Like, are you keeping cows around longer? Are they like what's the? I guess what's the the lactation success after being on a product like uh, on a decad? Well, diet? it's all based on expectation because those data are not available to my knowledge. Yeah. So okay. the, the challenge is to do large experiments with individually fed cows because these experiments have to be, the treatment has to be applied to the individual cow. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it's hard for me to do a, a, a valid experiment if I go to a commercial farm and I feed one pen, one diet, another pen, another diet mm -hmm. uh, from the experimental point of view. So uh, having said that, there is a recent experiment out of uh, Guelph, uh, mm -hmm. Stephen LeBlanc's group that show, uh, uh, replicates a lot what we know from the smaller uh, experiments in terms of a number of cows. They use uh, uh, multiple pens in multiple farms and they showed benefits to lactation in the multiparous cows, reduction in disease in the multiparous cows. Uh, exactly what we had seen from university farm uh, experiments. So, you know, if the logic applies to this, if I have less milk fever, I have less metritis, less retained placenta, and milk yield typically goes up one to one and a half kilograms in the subsequent lactation per day, one to one and a half mm -hmm. kilograms per day. Uh, I think my interpretation is that survival of the cow will be extended. If you have less disease, a little bit more milk, the logics that those cows will become pregnant sooner, producers will retain more of them. But can I show this with hard data? I can't. We don't have those data uh, that I, I know uh, very well. But in, I think the expectation is by reducing the risk of morbidity, by increasing milk yield, is that these cows are going to survive longer. Well, I think just the even just the breeding back aspect, like they come through the transition better, less ketosis, less metritis, less RPs, less milk fever. They're just, they're going to have an easier lactation and kind Correct. of, yeah. And they're just going to, they're going to stick around the farm longer. If they're, if they're doing well, then it's usually the cows that uh, you know about that get put on the hit list. It's the cows you don't know about that you want a whole herd <laughs> full of. So. <laughs> Correct. That's exactly right. The cows that give you yeah. no trouble. Those yeah. are the good cows. <laughs> Is there, any impact on colostrum yield with DCAD? Yeah, that's a, that's a question that a lot of people ask. Are there consequences to the calf and to colostrum yield and quality in terms of uh, uh, nutrient composition and IgG, immunoglobulin content? Mm -hmm. And we've measured this in three experiments in which we manipulated DCAD prepartum. Uh, one with a mixture of, uh, of multiple lactation animals and in two experiments with heifers, just nulliparous cows. And we saw nothing, no change in colostrum yield, no change in colostrum composition, fat, protein, solids, not fat, IgG content, uh, exactly the same, whether she was fed a positive or a negative uh, DCAD during the prepartum uh, period. Uh, 
Uh, and relative to the calf, exactly the same. In two experiments we've done, uh, we saw no difference in uh, uh, passive transfer, ability to absorb uh, colostrum IgG, no difference in dry matter intake in the calves during the pre-weaning period, no difference in uh, uh, average daily gain up to weaning. So uh, the colostrum composition and yield and the calf performance uh, did not differ between cows that were fed uh, uh, diets that were either acidogenic or alkalogenic prepart. Yeah, because I know it's one of the one of the pushbacks we get here, and I've been down this rabbit hole of colostrum yields and what affects it, and there's not a lot of information out there, so we're That's trying to learn a lot right. just through my own, I guess, observations and experiences and. I think, yeah, you know, th this thing of colostrum, what affects colostrum yield and quality other than, you know, milking machine time and being careful yeah. with the cow at milking, not stressing her out, those types of things. There's very little knowledge. Uh, we know some, but we don't have any magic bullet that goes, to, you go to a farm and they're having problems. Cows are supposed to producing six liters of colostrum, seven liters, they're producing only one or two. And we go there and we implement a change and immediately fixes the problem. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's an area that requires a little bit more investigation. You're you're right. Now I can say that to to, to the best of my knowledge today, from the experiments that uh, have addressed that particular question, uh, DCAD, whether it's positive or negative prepartum, is not one of the culprits for either better or worse quality uh, colostrum. No, because I see both of it. Like I see cows that do real well on DCAD, lots of colostrum, and you see they're on DCAD and you know, there's no colostrum. Like it's such a crapshoot. I find that I think like I had one farm and I just said, Hey, add some, this is a year ago. I said, they're having problems. I was like, add some corn into the, to the close up pen. They did colostrum came up. They ran out of corn. So they weren't putting it in colostrum didn't go down. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. and they did it again this year. And uh, same thing. They put the corn in and colostrum went up. So we'll see what happens when they pull it out. So I don't know if it's just a coincidence of timing or, or or seasonality or what it is but it's just makes you want to pull your hair out so or what little hair i've left so um with calcium levels in the in the diet like i want to circle back to minerals a little bit like should we be adding extra calcium in the diets like pushing up you know over 0.7 or like that or do we just want to kind of let the calcium do what it's going to do and yeah so drive on? i think uh, a lot of times this gets confusing because either lack of good data or lack of good understanding, one of the two, yeah? So in general, cows don't develop milk fever for lack of dietary calcium. In fact, if you feed a diet that's deficient in calcium for the cow, that she doesn't get enough, you prevent hypocalcemia. That was the traditional method of preventing hypocalcemia in the 60s and 70s was to cause a negative calcium balance prepartum, so such that the cow has to uh, gear up or upregulate all the mechanisms of uh, calcium conservation in the body. Uh, so when these acidogenic diets came along, then people started investigating, should we change calcium content of the diet? And if you really dig the literature, you'll find that those data are very weak. Okay, uh, It's actually very weak. And there is uh, really no data to support, you know, high calcium diets. You have to remember that calcium 
is one of those ions that has positive charges, it has two positive charges. So it, when absorbed, and in, in the, the, uh, perhaps the issue here is that calcium is not as absorbable as other ions. Uh, so the digestibility of calcium is a lot less than potassium, chloride, uh, sodium. But when absorbed, calcium counteracts the acidogenic component of the diet. It actually increases uh, blood pH. So if you overfeed calcium in the diet, let's say like some people will feed one and a half, 2% of the diet as calcium. Uh, although calcium is absorbed only at 30 to 45%, you're feeding so much that you have to add more of the acidogenic salts. So you're adding the poison and you're start trying to counteract. Now, obviously if that cow stops eating after calving, you get a lot of calcium in GI tract that is there. Whether that calcium is going to be absorbed because if the cow stops eating, the gut stops moving. And most absorption of calcium in the cow takes place in the rumen. It's actually before the intestine. It's very, cow is very different than us humans and uh, monogas like swine and poultry that uh, the absorption takes place in the small intestine. In the cow is actually pre-abomason or pre-duodenum more than 90% of the calcium is absorbed uh, pre-duodenum. So if she has no uh, gut or rumen contraction because she stops eating, that calcium sits there and it's not gonna be absorbed anyways, okay? So what does the data tell us uh, relative to calcium? We, a few years ago, compiled uh, all the experiments that we could find in the literature that manipulate DCAD prepartum. And what we showed was an association between calcium content in the diet and risk of milk fever. As people fed more calcium, the risk of milk fever went up. So I don't think people should be feeding diets that have one, one and a half or 2% calcium based on the knowledge we have today. Uh, there are some recent controlled experiments in which cows were fed uh, 0.7, 0.6% calcium versus a little over 1%. And they, they are small experiments, typical of university uh, type of experiments because uh, the limitation of cow number and the fact that we need to feed them individually. But they show no benefit of adding the extra calcium. So if you ask me, should we add additional rock to the diet, limestone or something like that? I would say no, because there is uh, really no support to improve uh, uh, blood calcium concentrations after calving. And the data would probably, uh, you know, the data that we have would show that actually increases the risk of hypocalcemia. That's really interesting because I, I think I, like I typically try to stay under say 0.5 with, especially on DCAT. And it seems to be working well. Like we're not seeing any milk fever. We're not testing for subclinical, but I just, I, I was worried about going too low like what's too low, maybe? Yeah, so I can comment on that level of 0 0.6, 0 0.7. When we have done, we have uh, four recent experiments in the last four years that we measure calcium balance pre-part. Because one of the consequences of feeding acidogenic diets is that the cows will pee more calcium. They will excrete more calcium in the urine. And that's probably one of the benefits of these diets uh, because what it does is prevents the kidney from reabsorbing the calcium that's filtered in the urine. So when, when you cause that low urine pH, 
in the kidney, there are channels that recover a lot of the nutrients that have been filtered into the filtrate of the urine before it gets to the bladder. Yeah. So the kidney is geared towards filtering the bad things and recovering the good things. So it brings back into the circulation the things that the body wants to retain. So calcium is one of them. Okay. So the, the kidney filters the calcium in blood that gets into the filtrate that will eventually form the urine. But then as it circulates through the kidney, they recover a lot of those minerals back into the bloodstream. But when we cause acidic urine, like 6.0, 5.8, the kidney loses that ability to recover some of that calcium. So then the calcium is excreting urine. So a cow, a dry cow that is fed a diet that is alkalogenic, Okay, so that doesn't cause metabolic acidosis, will excrete in the urine less than one gram of calcium, you know, 500 milligrams, very tiny amount. When we feed these acidogenic diets, she will excrete in the urine per day, uh, perhaps 10 to 15 grams of calcium uh, in that period. Okay, so this is like producing colostrum before calving. I always make this analogy, maybe it's not correct. But to, uh, in terms of uh, quantitative loss of calcium, it's quite close. It's like a cow that's continuously losing calcium in urine, equivalent to what colostrum would be. And that is part of, that's probably a, a large component of this protective mechanism, because now this cow has been losing calcium in the urine uh, for several days. Now she can easily adapt to an additional loss of calcium in colostrum once she starts lactation. But because she loses calcium urine, the logical thinking of most people is, hey, now this cow is deficient in calcium, I need to feed more in the diet. That's the typical thinking. Yeah? But what they forget is that at the same time that they lose more in the urine, they also absorb more in the gastrointestinal tract. The, these okay. diets increase the ability to absorb the dietary calcium in addition to increasing uh, bone remodeling, okay? So when we do the calculations, we see exactly the same calcium balance, despite of the fact that they lose a lot more in the urine. But we've done this with diets containing 0.6, 0.7% calcium. We haven't done this uh, uh, balance, calcium balance studies with diets that are very marginal, like let's say 0.3 or 0.35% calcium. So I, I can't answer uh, uh, that question whether what, if, what is too low in an acidogenic diet? Uh, from the literature, from uh, association studies, uh, we don't really see an increase in hypocalcemia with diets with 0.3% calcium that are fed acidogenic salts. But can I give you the experiment that has shown, that has compared 0 0.3, 0 0.7, 1, 1.5% in an acidogenic diet feeding? Mm -hmm. uh, th those data are really not available, unfortunately. What about phosphorus? Yeah, phosphorus is one of the minerals that preparton, you want to stay away from it. Phosphorus well, increases I, the risk of hypocalcemia. Well, I was just listening to uh, uh, a podcast and they were referencing a study that came out of the Netherlands about that, about dietary phosphorus. And the trend was push it down. Like, yeah, don't worry about your calcium phosphorus ratio. Just feed as little phosphorus as possible. It's almost as it's almost as uh, bad as that other pea mineral that we talk about. So with dry cows. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So obviously, you know, the potassium is quite variable in the diet and it will, it will give you, will, will cause milk fever. If you feed 
potassium carbonate in your prepartum diet. That's a recipe for milk fever. If you want a recipe for milk fever, I'll send it to you. Sodium bicarb <laughs> with potassium carbonate, you're going to get lots of down counts. Uh, the phosphorus is an interesting one. Uh, I, I don't think it is as bad as sodium and potassium, but it has its role. So I think the, the work they are referring to is some recent work uh, in collaboration between Netherlands and Germany, in which they fed very low phosphorus prepartum. There's a, new, uh, a few new experiments in the last five or six years, one out of uh, uh, Jesse Goff's group and Dave Beatty uh, at Iowa State and, and Michigan, and there's this uh, Dutch studies. And they typically show that as you increase phosphorus prepartum, blood calcium on the day of calving uh, goes down. And there's some biological reasons for that. Uh, usually when you've uh, uh, increased dietary phosphorus, the blood phosphate concentration goes up. And when phosphorus goes up, that activates the secretion of a hormone by the bone that's called uh, fibroblast growth factor 23. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, the acronym is FGF23. And this uh, hormone, the function of this hormone is to prevent hyperphosphatemia, is to prevent an increase in blood phosphate in excess. So it's a regulatory mechanism. But once this hormone kicks in, it actually depresses uh, uh, the synthesis of active vitamin D3 in the kidney. So then uh, uh, the expectation is that when we feed a high phosphorus diet repartant, the activity of the enzymes that are needed for synthesis of active vitamin D3 goes down. And without uh, active vitamin D3, absorption of calcium gets compromised. So then uh, uh, when we overfeed phosphorus prepartum, we tend to reduce the ability of the body to uh, increase blood calcium concentrations and that uh, predispose some animals to develop uh, subclinical hypocalcemia. Now, uh, how much phosphorus is a problem? And that's a good question. I would say, uh, if you're not overfeeding byproducts that are very high in phosphorus, such as canola meal or uh, distiller's grains, which tend to have a high phosphorus content, uh, if, you should probably avoid uh, uh, overfeeding very large quantities of that prepartum, which you probably want because those are protein source, so you're restricted on how much you want to feed because there is no need to overfeed protein before calving anyways. Uh, but you don't want to supplement phosphorus salts prepartum, okay? There's really no need to add that. So what are the, the recommendations today? Get phosphorus low, you know, 0.3% of the diet, 0.28. So don't try to increase phosphorus like you would for a lactating cow. Uh, the interesting thing from the Dutch work is that they fed low phosphorus before, but unfortunately, from my perspective, they also fed low phosphorus immediately after calving. And I think the rationale for those experiments were to reduce, to demonstrate or to detect whether we can go to very low phosphorus diets because of environmental impacts. You know, in the mm -hmm. Netherlands, there are major issues uh, with nitrogen and phosphorus in water and soil. So they were probably looking at that. But then when they went to this very low phosphorus diet postpartum, they showed that those cows had muscle weakness because phosphorus okay. is important for energy production in the cell uh, to produce uh, what's called uh, uh, ATP. 
So when they fed these diets with 0.3%, 0.27% phosphorus after calving, those cows had signs uh, uh, in the uh, uh, skeletal muscle that was compatible with muscle weakness. So we should feed low phosphorus prepartum, but postpartum is a slightly different story. So as usual, what we do prepartum is not necessarily the same thing we do in early lactation for cows. And that applies to uh, almost all the minerals, calcium, phosphorus, potassium, yeah. sodium, chloride. We do opposite things in those two distinctive phases of the life of the cow. Well, it, see, it seems like pre-calving, you want limit, 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 limit. And then when they calve, you're like, pound it in there, pound it in there. Yeah, if you know, <laughs> yes, exactly. Because once they calve, that memory gland sucks up a lot of things. Yeah? We, well, we select cows to do that. I, I, I don't think we... I don't think we realize how big of a metabolic change these cows go through. <laughs> like they're going from zero to 300 miles an hour. Yeah, like it's a big change. It's a big change. <laughs> and it's, yeah. a, it's a short period of adaptation. You know, yeah, mm -hmm. obviously they have the fetal growth that gears up things that is extracting nutrients. But the reality, if you think about how we've done things uh, from the genetic perspective, we select cows to produce more milk, more nutrients, yeah? So they secrete. We we've been selecting cows uh, for uh, decades to produce more fat, protein, lactose. Yeah. So we want more. Every time we buy semen from a bull, the first thing producers look is pounds of fat or kilos of fat, kilos yeah. of protein, and perhaps kilos of milk, depending upon what market they're in. But we never really select cows for let's get cows that eat more in the first week after calving to match yeah. that increase in milk yield because we never had that phenotype. We never measure intake in cows. We expect they eat more, but we just don't know. Yeah, that's the expectation. And it turns out that many of those cows lag behind for a few weeks. And that mm -hmm. is when trouble happens is when they cannot catch up in terms of uh, nutrient intake relative to the nutrient output. So they, mobilize a lot of tissue, which is perfectly fine. That's the adaptation process. But there are some of those cows that uh, they just cannot cope with this extensive catabolic state. Yeah. Yeah. So they eventually develop disease. Are all DCAD products created equal? Like, is there a difference in efficacy from, say, a chloride-based versus a sulfur-based product? Yeah, definitely a, a difference between chloride and sulfur. So products that are based in on chloride, they are uh, more acidogenic than products based on sulfur. So if you use the standard DCAD calculation, uh, the values uh, uh, may not necessarily reflect the acidogenic power of the product if it is a sulfate base versus a chloride base. I would say I always favors chloride based uh, uh, products. They are more uh, uh, efficacious than uh, sulfate based. Uh, and, and sulfate, you don't want to overfeed because it has this uh, uh, interactions, negative interactions with copper and selenium that will reduce their bioavailability. So that's one, one point. Now, I think where it becomes a gray area is my product better than yours? Yeah, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of commercial products in the market. Is Santos product better than Keith's product? And that is uh, something that we don't know. I'll let the companies fight that war. Yeah. You should, you should yeah. use the product that you feel comfortable with, that you get good support. And in general, all commercial products, including 
uh, all generic salts, they work really well. If properly used, they work very well. Yeah, I think it's a matter of making sure it gets used properly. Correct. As recommended is more important than maybe what the what a different product's doing. But there's lots of there's lots of choice out there, whether it be like a product that you put in there or a protein product that you could add with that's treated. So just lots of choice. Um I had kind of one final question for you. So I did uh I did a, a poll on Twitter. Um, and I had about a hundred respondents and just kind of asking producers and nutritionists what they're doing for calcium strategies. So we had about uh, 40% said DCAD, but there was another 20% that said they use calcium binders. And I was wondering if you had any experience or have, have done any research on them. Yeah, I, I personally don't have any uh, research experience with the aluminum silicates. That's what they are probably using. Yep. Uh, the zeolites. But I've read the literature on that. I'm aware of some of the experiments with zeolites and uh, most of, of them uh, have been done in Europe. Uh, uh, and there are a couple of recent papers, one out of Cornell University, Tom Overton and his group. So zeolites work perfectly to prevent milk fever. Uh, and the idea is to limit calcium uh, absorption. Yeah? It's, it's like, uh, feeding a very low calcium diet, which sometimes not possible. Mm -hmm. So what people would do is they don't add any high calcium ingredient to the diet, and then they add the zeolite, you know, half a kilo to 700 grams of uh, aluminum silicate. Uh, and by restricting calcium absorption, now this cow has to upregulate all the conservation mechanisms before calving, before she starts uh, accumulating colostrum in the mammary gland or producing milk. Having said that, uh, uh, zeolites have more unknowns than uh, acidogenic diets because there's just less research. It's not because it's less effective by any means, just that we know less about it. What we know is that it does prevent uh, milk fever. It reduces the risk. I, I shouldn't say prevent because uh, there is no strategy that's 100% bulletproof. Yeah? So it reduces the risk of milk fever. It uh, does increase blood calcium uh, on the day of calving, but it also, uh, uh, you add a large amount of rock to the diet. Uh, so you're adding 600, 700, you know, six, 7% of the diet dry matter as ash. And it binds other things than just calcium. So what the data on zeolite would show is that blood calcium concentrations go up. I don't think we have enough data to uh, make any inference about milk production at this point or disease incidents uh, at this point because the data is quite scarce uh, on that. And uh, it does decrease uh, blood magnesium and phosphorus uh, in those cows and it decreases intake prepartum with a slight increase in blood lipids because of increased uh, uh, adipose tissue mobilization. So the cow eats a little less, she mobilizes a little bit more uh, body fat uh, it increases blood calcium, but it actually decreases uh, uh, phosphorus and, and, and magnesium, if I recall the data correctly. So it is a, a strategy that is very valid for those that cannot handle the acetogenic diets. I think we need more data to say is this as good as the acetogenic diets or not, but it's definitely a valid strategy to prevent milk fever. 
Yeah, I know. I, I was surprised by the number that came back, and it could have just been the sample size or the or the the people that were looking at it. But, but I, I think, thought it was really interesting. That, yeah, I think I wouldn't be surprised if that is true. If you go across the board in North America, because yeah. uh, for a lot of people uh, managing acidogenic diets, uh, they've made a choice of not measuring urine pH, not analyzing feed, so they want a recipe. And the zeolites become perhaps a, a safer recipe. I add so many grams of a product and I don't care about the mineral, the potassium content of my forages, whether it goes up or down. Uh, I don't need to take urine pHs. So it's sort of a, 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 a safety net for those that don't want to manage the other strategy, yeah? the other technology, which is acidogenic mm -hmm. salts. That, requires a little bit more uh, uh, engagement with the free part and cow program. It's simple. It is simple. Whether it's better, yeah. it's, I, I'll leave yeah. it out there. But it's simple from the point of view that you add a product to any diet and you worry less. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure people who are doing this, they are still trying to limit potassium intake. Obviously, they shouldn't be feeding any calcium in the diet free part because it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah additional supplemental calcium, I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, but I think they are still applying some of the concepts of acidogenic diets, but probably they don't want to take urine pHs and analyze feed as often as somebody who's doing acidogenic diets prepared. Well, it's funny you mentioned the potassium thing there because I find that producers aren't worried about the potassium levels when they're feeding the binder. And I think that, I think yeah. that I think that's driven by it being a European product, and they're feeding a lot more grass silages and things like that than we typically would in North America. And I know even in parts of of Canada, like Eastern Canada, there's very very high potassium in the soil, so they they're concerned less about it. And I makes me nervous. <laughs> and I think they should. But, you should not neglect about potassium, even if you're feeding the binder, because yeah. the binder is targeting calcium there. And yeah. I'm not even sure, uh, I, I haven't seen any data whether the binder binds potassium effectively. I know it binds divalent cations like calcium, yeah. but I'm not sure if it binds potassium. I don't so, know what it, I don't know what it binds. Like, I, I don't think it's a specific binder. Oh, no, it's not a specific no, at all. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. We use that for mycotoxins, yeah? It's the yeah. same concept, aluminum silicates, yeah? Bentonites. Yeah. 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 may not necessarily so. be the same product, but. Somewhat the concept is similar. Yeah. Dr. Santos, I'd really appreciate you coming on the podcast uh, uh, this week. And I, uh, I really appreciate the knowledge that you're sharing with the producers here and the listeners. And and I uh, wish you all the best here in the spring. I know you were telling me before you got on all the silage corns in. Uh, so life must be uh, life must be good in, or in North Florida. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity, Keith. It's a pleasure to to uh, uh, speak with you today. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.